When I was a senior in college, I got to be roommates with one of my best friends. Aaron and I lived in a townhouse on campus with four other guys, and uh, I remember one night, really vividly during the semester, waking up, and I, I, I rolled over, and I noticed that Aaron wasn't in his bed. It was strange because he was asleep when I went to sleep, and now he's seemingly disappeared and it wasn't it was unusual for Aaron to leave without at least telling me that he was going to get up early in the morning and I didn't recall him telling me that he was going anywhere and I didn't see a light on in the bathroom or anything and as I'm mentally going down the checklist of possible reasons Aaron wasn't there still half asleep mind you a bible verse just popped into my mind Two men will be working in the field, and one will be taken, and one left. And being the brilliant Bible scholar, ministry major, whatever, I instantly reinterpreted that passage. Two men will be asleep in their dorm room, and one will be taken, and one left. And friends, I tell you, I got saved that night. All because I believed that my friend had been raptured. Though the term rapture doesn't, it can't be found anywhere in the Bible, despite what a lot of Christians might think. This idea stems from, this, from the, some of these cryptic passages like the one we read this morning. It's the belief that, that both the living and the dead will, will ascend into the heavens to meet Jesus Christ in the air at his second coming. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead will rise first, and after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Notice that Paul never uses the R word in this passage. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. But I tell you what, I wasn't feeling much encouragement that night. It made all the perfect sense that Aaron would be the one that was raptured. He was and still is one of the most godliest, most Christ-like individuals that I'd ever known. So it logically made sense to me that Jesus would rapture him. But by a process of elimination, it also meant that I missed the rapture. One will be taken, one left. I was the one left behind. I was like those people in those books that I never read that I was left behind. I must have slept through the bright lights and the trumpet sound of Jesus' second coming. I missed it, I thought, the day and the hour that I was supposed to be waiting for. Apparently, I guess I'm just that heavy of a sleeper. So for a good while that night, I was convinced that Aaron had been raptured. My heart rate began racing and adrenaline was kicking in, but I chose to investigate just a little further to see whether any of the other guys, maybe the other guys in the townhouse, had been, you know, raptured as well. And as I crept down the staircase into our living room area, you know what I discovered? Aaron was asleep on the couch. Like Jesus, who was asleep in the cushion during that storm at sea. My friend was peacefully asleep on the cushion during my turbulent emotional sea that night, believing that I'd missed the rapture. And that was the night that I discovered that I allegedly snored. 
allegedly. Today marks the beginning of the Advent season, but also the start of a new Christian year. And historically and traditionally, the church calendar doesn't begin with, well, we're the beginning. It actually begins at the end. The anticipation and expectation of the consummation and culmination of all things. And if that wasn't confusing enough, the Christian calendar begins with a date that can't be placed on any of our calendars. A day and hour that no one knows. A day and hour that likely elicits more anxiety than anger, if not unhealthy obsession. I find it so fascinating that the internal clocks or the uh, circadian rhythms, if I can call it that, of the church are reset and renewed, not by revisiting a tranquil evening gathered around a manger, though that eventually comes, but by initially and briefly glimpsing the apocalypse. Something far more uncomfortable than anything we'd probably start with, right? Something I doubt you and your family read and talk about right before you start opening presents. But maybe our Christian ancestors who invented the seasons of the Christian year, who drew up the season of Advent and imbued it with rich meaning and symbolism, maybe they recognize that there are lessons that only the apocalypse can teach us. And so before we hear scripture readings the next couple of weeks about the first advent of a lowly infant, I invite us into this historical practice of glimpsing Christ's second advent, if only we do so dimly. My hope is that the Holy Spirit will illuminate something in our hearts this morning as we enter into this new Christian year, this season of Advent, by first reflecting on that fateful, unknown day and hour. In Matthew 24, we find an adult Jesus talking with his disciples on the Mount of Olives in the final hours of his life. If I haven't already lost you this morning, Jesus is closer to Good Friday than he is Christmas at this point in his life. In a few hours, he'll be sharing a final meal with his disciples and then head off into a garden only to leave arrested. In a way, Jesus' own day and hour was at hand. But in the calm before the storm, Jesus is making the most of his final moments with his disciples, fielding their honest questions, the same questions many of us probably have, the same questions you probably have tried to stump a pastor with in the past. Tell us, they say, when will this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Towards the end of the chapter, Jesus finally gets around to answering those questions. After giving graphic, if not cryptic descriptions, not necessarily prescriptions of the birth pains, as Jesus called them for the last days, the precursors of that day and hour of Jesus' second advent, Jesus finally answers the disciples' question. You won't know. You won't know when Jesus' return will happen. And you will never will. No angelic being who resides in the presence of God right now around his heavenly throne, they don't know. Not even the incarnate Son of God knew. It'll be unpredictable. 
There will be no sign. There may be general indicators of Jesus' second advent, but they will be so general in nature that no one will be able to pinpoint the time. In fact, it'll be unexpected. And Jesus uses the three scenarios to get this point across, a Bible reference, a real-life example, and a parable. I'm going to go through them really quick. The day and the hour of Jesus' second coming will be like the days of Noah. We often get distracted by all the animals in the Noah story to not really appreciate that the days leading up to that flood, folks weren't really concerned about the end of the world. In fact, they appear to be oblivious to it because life was, quite frankly, really boring. Life was average. Life was ordinary. I guess the only thing out of the ordinary, there was a guy down the street by the name of Noah who was building a large boat in the middle of dry land. No one paid attention to Noah until it was too late. They were more preoccupied with the normal ebbs and flows and routines and rhythms of life, like going to school or going to college and holding down a job and getting married, raising kids, throwing parties, probably watching the chiefs. Well, maybe not that last one. Jesus' point is not that these activities are sinful, but that the people were so wrapped up in everyday activities that they were caught off guard because they had no concern for spiritual realities. It was too late to consider the message behind Noah's seaworthy vessel as the first raindrops began to fall. The doors were shut and their fate was sealed this is what Jesus' second coming will be like. It will burst in when it's least expected, and many will be caught completely off guard, blissfully unaware as they navigate life. That's why Jesus uses a couple of blue-collar examples of people at work to demonstrate how sudden his return will be. And a group of former fishermen and tax collectors that are listening to Jesus, this, they'll understand this. Two guys will be busy at work likely in a field because the majority of men in those days were farmers, and one will disappear and the other won't. Two women will be hard at work grinding wheat into flour, which was common for women to do in those days, and then the blink of the eye, one will vanish and another won't. Two were present, minding their own business, doing what they do every day, but one will be left. Jesus isn't trying to make someone believe their roommate vanished and was raptured in the middle of the night and as a cause of panic. Unfortunately, if you're like me, some fire and brimstone preachers have led us to believe that. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is reinforcing just the unpredictability of his second advent. He's not talking about the rapture as we've been sold on how it's supposed to work. Nowhere, notice that nowhere Jesus says it's better to be the one left or the one taken. He doesn't attach moral connotations to the one who was taken or the one who wasn't. And something inside us irks us to believe that being left behind is bad because we expect him to say that because preachers centuries later put words in Jesus' mouth instead of, you know, listening to what Jesus actually said himself. Sorry, just a little pet peeve. I'll get back to the sermon. The point Jesus is driving at which he has been this entire time, is that both people in this, these examples will be caught completely by surprise. His second coming is going to happen when they don't see it coming. These folks were minding their own business, doing their nine-to-five jobs, and then suddenly it happens. That's why it will come as unexpectedly as a break-in by a cat burglar. Thieves do not book appointments to rob homes. They target those who are unaware 
That's the thrust of Jesus' parable, the heavenly meeting behind this earthly story. It'll feel random. It'll feel spontaneous because burglars and thieves, especially good ones if my knowledge of heist movies is anything to go off of, they don't telegraph when they're going to pull a job. They want to keep that information as close to the vest as possible so as to not alarm or alert the one whom they're going to steal from. Now, obviously, Jesus' second coming is not something nefarious, like stealing something valuable or robbing a bank, but the tactics of thieves hasn't changed over 2,000 years. It's unpredictable, it's sudden, it's unexpected, it's a surprise, and that's what says second coming is going to feel like, like a thief in the middle of the night. Jesus speaks about not knowing a lot in this passage. We don't know the day or the hour or the time at night when his second coming will happen. And I don't know about you, friends, but this makes me feel uncomfortable. I like to know things. I like to have things jotted on my calendar. I like things to be predictable. I wonder if I'm not alone in feeling this way. There is an ease and a serenity that comes from being in the know. And Jesus speaks of no one ever reaching this peace of mind about this day or this hour. And as far as I can tell, Jesus is saying all of this as being just as in the dark about all this as we were. Again, we can talk about later how that's possible. But Jesus is talking about living and the tension of not knowing alongside us and with us as only Emmanuel, God with us, can. He understands the limitations of human knowledge when it comes to the last days. He can sympathize and resonate with us like no other God can. Jesus speaks of uncertainty from a human vantage point. No one will know and no one can know. But notice that Jesus adds one exception. Jesus says only the Father knows. This is a personal and familial term. He doesn't feel the need to qualify or elaborate on it. He just says it with assurance and confidence. The Son doesn't know the date, but he personally knows the one who has it on his calendar and jotted down on his planner, his Heavenly Father. This is the same Heavenly Father Jesus told us to pray to. If you remember, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, making him our Heavenly Father as well. This is the same Heavenly Father that Jesus said later in that same train of thought to entrust tomorrow to. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. How are you not more valuable than they? So don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious of itself. This is the same Heavenly Father, Jesus, in a matter of hours, and trust His Spirit too. Both in the garden, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. But later, as He's about to breathe His last on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As I see it, that heavenly father, Jesus is content with being the only one who needs to know that future day and hour. Jesus ain't stressing over his second advent. 
He's not trying to figure it out. He ain't even sweating bullets over it. He's perfectly at peace knowing that his father is in control of the future, that it's in his hands. Not only that glorious day and hour in the future, but also the more grim day and hour lingering in front of him, mind you, on Calvary in a few hours. In both cases, Jesus surrenders control of his time and his destiny to his heavenly father. He relinquishes his foreknowledge and his comprehension and mastery of time in both instances. I think that's amazing. As I was thinking through this text this year, I got to thinking, what if all this talk about the apocalypse is not just about the grand finale or the end of the world, but living in the midst of uncertainty and unknowing? living with the unpredictability of the future, living even in the midst of the shadow of chaos right now. Perhaps therein lies the mysterious lesson from the apocalypse that I think we're searching for. What if we've misunderstood what apocalypse is really all about? What if we've been led to believe that these apocalyptic texts are only good for often unhealthy speculation about the end times or fueling a host of conspiratory chicken littles believing the sky is falling after every current event? What if the apocalypse is much more nuanced than that? What if apocalypse is not only about some unknown day in the future but enduring today and every day? Maybe every day is an apocalypse. Maybe we are always living in apocalyptic times, or if you're not willing to go that far, maybe some days or seasons in your life feel more apocalyptic than others. It's not just the consummation of time and history that's unexpected. Much of life feels that way, right? We are regularly caught off guard, sometimes joyfully, but often not. And the unraveling and disruption of the world spoken about in these apocalyptic texts, don't they match and parallel the unraveling and disruption we feel in our lives sometimes, friends? When life feels chaotic and out of control, when we often don't know what to say or what to pray, when we feel powerless as life seems to spiral out of control and we're at the end of our rope, when questions abound and answers are few and far between, when explanations neither satisfy or make sense, and while in a literal sense the world is not coming to an end, it sure feels that way. The circumstances of our life serve as the catalyst or become crucibles for what I've heard described as quiet apocalypses. And they range in intensity and severity depending on the person, whether it's a natural disaster, a job loss, COVID, addictions, injuries, relocating, issues in your marriage, a miscarriage, bullying at school, loneliness, burnouts, depression, bereavement, and so many other personal and poignant and unexpected setbacks that make us all, that take us aback. And they threaten any semblance of order we've 
imaged, we've created ourselves. Apocalypse often feels like hell on earth, as some might say. It's a battlefield of our souls where the sources of darkness seek to make a foothold. It's a place deep within us where the mystery of God's plans and timing often collide with our thoughts and our desires. It's the place the wrestling mat is laid out and we begin sparring with God, yearning for a blessing or at least some clarity on what the purpose is behind this trial or testing. Apocalypse is so much more than our eschatology, our study of the last things, my friends, I think. It's much more real than that. And as I see it, the question becomes less about the end of the world and more about how do we live with uncertainty and not knowing and powerlessness every day. What does faithfulness look like in in those times? How do we live in the midst of unexpectedness, not simply in anticipating Jesus' second coming, but about the uncertainty that accompanies every waking moment. And as we sojourn through the birth pains awaiting the true end of days that Jesus warns us about, how do we simply make it through the end of our hectic and chaotic days? I don't have an answer, but I have a thought. Perhaps it's found in remembering and seeing who is at the center of Advent, namely the arrival of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the center of Advent. And not only just at one point in the past, and not just some unknown point in the future, but seeing him in the present. Seeing him when he said, and I, and be sure of this, I am with you always even to the end of the age, does our eschatologies leave room for faith? I'm reminded of one of my favorite hymns. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light at the look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. And so turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This does not insulate us from an uncertain future, nor always numb the sting of quiet apocalypses that besiege our lives. But I think it does bring us assurance that we will not face the future alone. Come hell or high water, which seems appropriate as we traverse the days that are like Noah before the flood. Come hell or high water, Jesus will be with us by our side, granting us courage in the face of life's unexpected adversities and uncertainties. Perhaps this is what Jesus was trying to say, that we are to keep awake and to be ready, not simply for his return, though certainly that that's there but for all of life's unexpectedness, that we are ready and awake to respond accordingly, integrating knowledge of what it means to come into how we live and wait now as Christians with hope-filled power. Stanley Hauerwas says, disciples of Jesus must learn to take the time patiently to hope in a world that thinks there is no time for either hope or patience. This is how, when Jesus returns, we will not be swept away, but we will be swept into eternity in a way that makes us feel like a wild and happy, amazing scene, like it's the thing that we've always been waiting for, but really didn't know it until we had it. Advent embraces this 
already but not yet reality, friends. And so as the days grow shorter and darker, we light Advent candles each week to remind us that we do not face the darkness alone, but that indeed the light of the world has come, shining in the darkness to illuminate our lives and lead us forth not into fear, but courage and maybe even joy.